Welcome back to the LFDC podcast. My name is Pastor Jesse Smout. This week in Sunday School, we discuss some of the Apostolic Fathers, and specifically Ignatius, and his letters he wrote on his way to be martyred. We hope you're blessed. Church history. So today we're talking about uh, specifically one Apostolic Father and some of the persecution into the second century. You'll notice that there's so much to talk about that sometimes we're in, one week we're in a city of Jerusalem, like I talked about the church in Jerusalem, and then we're talking about the church in Rome, even though they're simultaneous in time. We're just, we have to break them out in certain ways. And so church history, we're mostly focusing on Ignatius of Antioch. Wow. Uh, and this is a quote of his. Now I begin to be a disciple, let fire and cross, flocks of beasts, broken bones, dismemberment come upon me. So as long as I attain to Jesus Christ. So he was born 35 AD or um, CE, if you prefer, and that was right after um, Pentecost. Pentecost is believed to be 33. So he was not even born um, Pentecost, but he grew up. Um, and so he is considered an apostolic father because he would be one of the first quote unquote apostles that was appointed by the 12 apostles. So he wasn't one of the 12 apostles or disciples of Jesus Christ but he was the, essentially the generation right after them. And so last week um, and the week before, we were kind of focusing on Nero and then Domitian in Rome and their lead, and they were the emperor, so they had reign over all the land in which Christianity was. But Rome specifically and the emperor specifically are important. So Domitian um, is dead before Ignatius is. Uh, but we're right around that time frame now where we're really looking at like 80 to 110 um, AD. And so that's primarily where we're at right now in time history. So we've got a long ways to go to get to the year 2000. So through the first century, many Christians were killed and persecuted. However, the details of that are scarce. Many, we know some things with Nero because they were put out, but we don't know everything. So by the early of the 2nd century, which would be 100 AD, the 1st century is 0 AD to 100 AD. That's the 1st century. 2nd century is 100 AD to 200 AD. So keep that in mind. So 2nd century being 100 AD. So by the early 2nd century, records begin to afford a clearer view of the persecutions and Christian attitude toward martyrdom. Have you guys heard of the martyrdom complex? Which is where people, they seem to want to be martyred. They, they want to be killed for the sake of the gospel. And so you'll actually see that with the apostolic fathers, especially with who we're studying today. This would be one of those guys in which that martyrdom complex comes. However, I think what he does is and writes is beautiful, and we'll get into that. Uh, so typical liturgies, so church worship schedules and church worship services, uh, they included the acts of the martyrs. They started including that into their, their planned agenda, which was... Here's this person's life, here's what happened, here's how they were martyred. Here's this person's life, here's what happened, here's how they were martyred. Here's this person's life, here's what happened, here's how they were martyred. They started including that in their Sunday service. Could you guys imagine if we're meeting together and be like, oh yeah, you know Brother Norm from, I'm just bringing that up because I know he's a, he's a pastor at Refuge, right? Yeah. You know Brother Norm, yeah, this was his life, this is what he did, and this is how he was just martyred because he's a Christian. Yeah. They, they included that in their Sunday service. 
Right? Could you imagine if we had to do that? That is insane. However, that's why I, I talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Not only were they scared to join the church because if they weren't really in, God might kill them. But if they weren't really in, the culture is going to kill them. And so you did have a lot of quote-unquote defectors, people that came to it, and, but they're like, ah, this is too much, too much pressure, too much going on, i got to back out. And that's why the language of Paul is so clear, like, if they left you, they weren't among you. Because those that have experienced Christ, those that experience God, they'll face death. They'll face persecution. Because what they've experienced is real, it's genuine, it's authentic. And so anyone who truly has tasted of Christ, anyone who's truly experienced the Lord, they'll stay. They'll remain, they'll persevere, and they'll even walk into death if necessary. And so they were talking about this. It's like, hey, if you can't do what these martyrs did, this might not be the church for you. This might not be the religion for you because we are in a, a nation, a country, a, the Greco-Roman Empire, in which we are martyred, we are killed, we are persecuted. They throw meat on our back and throw us out in the arena for entertainment and let the wolves loose to come rip us apart. Brutal, brutal stuff. So their church services typically inquire that. Some question the 100% authenticity, um, but the majority of the acts of the martyrs, which you can Google this, acts of the martyrs, it seems mostly reliable. Some people would beg, say like, oh, that's probably just a story to scare people. However, it seems reliable. Um, of the most important literatures written in this time was the seven letters of Ignatius. And so we're going to get into not all seven letters. We're not going to get into each one. But we're going to get into why they were written, when they were written, how they were written, and specifically one in specific. You know the sad part is, Jesse, is, or I'm sorry, Pastor, is that if that they probably had more people in their church then than we would today. Absolutely, yeah. If that was happening today. Yeah. Well, Mark's, Mark made that good point. They had more people in their church than we do today. And I'll bring this point up often because I just, I think it's the direction we're headed and I'll, I'll stand by it. But I've told Jarrell, I've told Rachel, I've told the elders, I've told a lot of people now that I did believe Biden was better for the church in the sense of he's going to enact things that are anti-biblical, anti-scriptural. And so it's really going to separate the wheat from the tares. Who are the woke evangelifish? That's a quote from Dodd Friel. Um, who are the woke evangelifish that just go with the flow? They don't have any backbone. Who are the woke evangelifish? And who are the genuine disciples of Christ who are dedicated to the Word of God, even though our culture hates it? One last. Um, if you were watching um, uh, Newsmax, they now have one episode where there is a pastor out there that is preaching that Jesus was a sinner, okay, um, when he um, cast out the... Is it the racist one? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. So, yeah, so that's... Seinfeld. On, on, uh, I think it was on uh, Stenchfield. So what uh, Mark is referencing, have you guys seen that? It's pretty viral at this point, but there's that, that reverend who is 
saying Jesus Christ himself had to apologize for his own racism and that he was a racist sinner? That's that same guy that I told you guys, I spoke of a couple months ago that said you can know God outside of the word of God and that you don't need the Bible to have a robust relationship with God. That quote from like two months ago is the same guy. But now he's getting viral because people are starting to realize, whoa, what is this guy talking about? He's been a heretic for a long time. I've actually known about him for about five or six months uh, because he's, his, most of his influence is on TikTok. And this younger generation, <laughs> I started get, I was, I was a little into the theology on TikTok, but I, did, I was like, what are these guys talking about? Most of them are just like weird. Um, and then I started doing, I started studying theologians on Instagram, and one of the big emphasis of uh, Instagram theologians is please do not get your theology from TikTok, because they know there's a lot of Generation Z young people on both. They're on TikTok, they're on Snapchat, they're on Instagram, and I will say there is genuinely good theology on Instagram. Um, there's good, like Dr. Stephen Lawson's on Instagram. You've got... Um, Christ is a Cure, which is my favorite podcast. Nick Campbell, he is fantastic. Just he is so smart. He is a uh, he's on Instagram. You got a lot of good accounts on Instagram, but you got on TikTok, and you got one way or the other. You got people making clips, you know, spouting their own personal convictions. You got that guy who's clearly a heretic, and these teenagers are so susceptible because they're like, "Yeah, my Jesus is loving. Yeah, my Jesus makes mistakes. Yeah, my Je-. they're building up a golden calf." So yeah, very very scary. So we have the three chief, I say chief because these are the three most noted and important apostolic fathers. Um, However, Pope Clement was never actually, there's no record of him being called Pope, but when you Google his name, it will say Pope because he was the quote-unquote Pope of the Church of Rome after Peter, and so people call him Pope, but there's actually no historical evidence that anyone called him Pope other than the Roman Catholic Church as it developed. Um, and did you guys know, what's funny is, do you know what Catholic means, like the meaning of Catholic? No. It means like worldwide. It means like, so when people say like the Catholic church, it's saying like the church of the world, like everyone's part of this church. And so when people, I've actually done a, just a tiny bit of study on it. Yeah. It's the same thing when LDS used to call them the church. Yeah. It's kind of like the same thing when the LDS church says the church. So Catholic Church means like it's everyone. It's it's the church. It's it's all across the world. It's all of us. So when, so when you say the Roman Catholic Church, it's like they're saying, well, everyone in the world except just the Rome and Catholic Church. But we have to make that differentiation because not every Catholic Church is associated with the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. Right. Hello, Josiah. Did you forget your Bible? Welcome in. And goodbye. So Clement was uh, born in 35, about the same time, died 899. We're not going to talk about him too much today, but he was Bishop of Rome. I want you guys to keep in mind, when we use these words, bishop, pastor, elder, overseer, they're interchangeable. They mean the same thing. People today don't think they mean the same thing. However, they technically do. Um, By very definition, by original language, by what people say. I mean, we can understand people hold different offices, and different positions of authority, that's okay, but really these are all interchangeable. 
So when they called people bishop, that was just what they used in those times for pastor, elder, overseer. That's not um, using the order of the, um, oh my gosh, I just had the word. Uh, you know what I'm saying. The order of the priesthood that went away when Jesus died on the cross. That's not part of that, right? No. I mean, the only ones that use priesthood now is like Mormons. Yeah, Mormons do. Is there anybody else? I don't think so. Um, in the Christian church, there really should only be like elders and deacons. Mm -hmm. And deacons are, we've talked about it, they're naturally serving the church wherever possible. But they are, deacons in a sense, are kind of like your elders in training. Mm -hmm. And that's how they were. So even if you get into other denominations, they'll say bishops and presbyterians, or presbyters, I should say, not presbyterians. Presbyterians, use the words presbyters. Uh, and presbyters are deacons. Mm -hmm. And bishops are elders. And bishops are pastors. And so just different languages and different denominations. Uh, really, if you want to identify someone that's over all of that, then you would just say like, a pastor of pastors, a bishop over the pastors, mm. and that's okay. And you could say, well, maybe they're even an apostle and, and things like that. You can get into nuances. The way I look at the term bishop, um, to me, it just simply means the leader of the Christian church at that time. Yeah. Steve said leader of the Christian church at that time. And that's exactly right. And you even got people that, that study and, and, and believe, and I, I, I would tend to believe with him, uh, is that churches are cities. What is the church of your demographic? Mm. Now, obviously, cities are bigger and cars and all of these things now in today's world. But churches were like, he was the bishop of Rome. He wasn't the church of living faith, which is located in Rome. He, no, he was, the, he was the bishop of Rome. And so in these days, especially because of the persecution, and especially they were family. They knew each other. If you were a Christian and you lived in the same city, you were of the same church. And so there is a vision, you know, by Isaac. You are the pastor of Marriott Slaterville. <laughs> well, yeah, you could say, like, you know, Marriott Slaterville, any Christians in this area, you could say, but they might not recognize me as such. And so I would say, well, hey, whatever pastor you have, we're not probably going to link up with the Methodist church anytime soon. But... I would tell the mayor. He'll accept it. The mayor might, but yeah, so. He loves us. He does. Uh, Polycarp, born 69, younger, uh, younger than these other two, died in 156 AD. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And then Ignatius, who we're focusing on today, of Antioch, which is very important because Antioch was uh, a key city in the early church, so he was a big deal. Born 35 AD, died 107 AD, and so he was the pastor of Antioch. Wow. So we've got to fly through uh, Pliny or Pliny and Trajan. Uh, Pliny, as a young man, was appointed to govern Bithynia in modern-day Turkey. Pliny loved and respected Roman law and tradition, so he was appointed to govern a city within the province of the or province of the Roman uh, Greco-Roman Empire. So he was under the emperor, but he was over in governing a specific city. In Bithynia, pagan temples were deserted. No one bought sacrificed meat or animals. What does that tell you? Christians were overtaking that city. <laughs> uh, Christians were thriving in Bithynia, and so Pliny began to challenge many residents, some Christians and some deserters of the faith, as we talked about, people left the faith and left the way. So two, uh, he would capture Christians or people that were seen to be Christian, 
and he required three things. One, you have to pray to pagan gods. Two, you had to burn incense and worship the image of the emperor. And three, you had to curse Jesus Christ. And the reason they did this, or he did this, is because if they refuse to do these things, they must be a Christian. Because no one else in this culture refuses to pray to a different pagan god, because they were all gods. Someone who wasn't a Christian would pray to any god, because there's a lot of gods. They would burn incense to the image of emperor, because emperor is our lord, and they would curse Christ. So those were his requirements to be set free. However, if you refused, uh, you were executed. Right? So he started bringing people in and saying, curse Christ, pray to these gods, burn incense and worship the emperor, and if you don't, I will kill you. And what happened? Well, some Christians were in that bag of handful, a handful of mix, and so Christians began to be persecuted. Uh, if they were Roman citizens, however, technically under law, he had to send them to Rome. He couldn't kill them himself. And so if they were Christians and they were living in the city, but they were Roman citizens, Gentile citizens, and he had to send them back up to Rome, and Rome got to decide what to do with them. And that's why Paul was beheaded rather than crucified, because he actually received Roman citizenship. And so because he was a Roman citizen, they did not make a fool of him or a mockery of him or a display of him, but rather just quick off of the head. However, Pliny's guilt set in. He, he actually felt guilty about this. I mean, by golly, anyone should if they're killing a bunch of people. And he felt guilty of this, and so he wanted a better reason to kill them. He felt like this isn't the best reason to kill a bunch of Christians just because um, they're obstinate or because they, re they refuse to do what I'm telling them to do. He didn't like that. He felt like that was unfair. And so he was told, Christians are peaceful. They do no wrong. They meet. They worship their personal God and usually eat and fellowship together. That's what he was told. He said, Christians don't do, they don't break laws. They're not stealing. They're not, they're not, you know, they're not breaking any of the Roman laws. They don't break laws. And so he actually got two women that were Christian women, and he tortured them, hoping that they would confess, oh yeah, the Christians are actually, they're, they're stealing from the market at night, or they're doing this. He, he wanted them to confess that Christians had guilt. So he tortured two Christian women in hopes that they would reveal, yes, the Christian church breaks the law. But they didn't. They said, no, we, we don't break the law. And you torture them, we don't break the law. You torture them, we don't break the law. You torture them, we don't break the law. And so uh, he realized the Christians aren't hiding anything. They're not breaking the law. And he obviously killed them. Uh, so then Pliny wondered, should Christians be penalized for crimes or simply just for being Christian? Like, should we penalize them for crimes? Or just, is the name Christian, should we outlaw Christianity? And so he wrote to the emperor at the time, Trajan, and Trajan's response was a bit ambiguous, but he wrote essentially that there is no general rule for Christians. And because they were upholding laws, they weren't breaking the law, and they weren't committing any crimes, he agreed with Pliny that, essentially Pliny said, we shouldn't be seeking them out and using our resources, our soldiers, our money, our time to go try to find these Christians and kill them. So essentially Trajan agreed. He said, don't, don't waste your resources seeking out Christians. However, if someone accuses, I think this person's a Christian, then yeah, let's bring them forth and essentially force them to recant Jesus Christ, refuse him and deny him, and if they don't, then punish them. So that became unofficially the law of the land moving forward. 
So keep that in mind. Is the reason we're talking about this specific situation is because this became the law of the land for the early church, especially in the early second century. Was it was an unofficial law. Christians aren't to be. You aren't supposed to just go try to find Christians and kill them for being Christian. Really, the Roman soldiers didn't really care that much. But if someone came forward and said this person's a Christian, then they would bring them forth and say you got you got to reject Jesus Christ as your Messiah. Um, so if they refused to worship the emperor, they felt like that meant that they did not think the emperor was fit to rule. And so they wanted them to reject Christ and worship the emperor. And so if they refused to do that, that meant you don't submit to our government, government and we're going to punish you. So, like I said, this became the law of the land. And it went backwards. All right, so Ignatius' death. Uh, important factor in this. Around 107 AD, the year of his death, Roman authorities called for Ignatius of Antioch to be brought to Rome. Why? Because Rome had just won a war or victory, in their, in, had a military victory, and so they were going to celebrate. And so they knew, hey, there's this really famous bishop of the city of Antioch. We know he's a Christian. We know he's one of the big leaders right now. Let's get him for our celebration and have him on display, be tortured, killed, killed, right, and, and persecuted. And so they wanted Ignatius from Antioch, because they heard of him, to be their entertainment. Entertainment how? Like I said, they were going to kill him. And so on his way to martyrdom, he wrote seven letters. Uh, I did some math. There's nothing online that I saw that specifically said how long it would take for um, them to travel from Antioch to Rome. But I believe as long as they didn't touch boat, both made travel a lot faster in those days. Um, but if they mostly just walked and, and slept and, and, you know, went by land, it probably took 20 to 30 days, I would guess. Maybe a little longer, depending on how long they would stay in certain cities and how much of a break they would give and how much they wanted to walk in a certain day. But if they were full haste and just made it quick, I would say 20 to 30 days. So on his way to what he knew, he knew he was on his way to be martyred, uh, to be killed. He wrote seven letters, um, which created some of the most important history to the early church, what was going on in those times, his seven letters. So obviously they're not canonized, they were not added to scripture. He was not someone who knew Jesus Christ personally, and so he was not, you know, his, his, his letters were not added to the Bible. However, he does have seven letters, you can look into them and, and read bits of them. Um, but his title that he was given was the bearer of God, which some turned to be born of God. And so this led to, um, some people believed he was the, I don't know why they draw this conclusion, but some people started a rumor that Ignatius was one of the children who sat on Christ's lap when the disciples were trying to forbid the children. However, timestamps and, and everything don't really make sense for that. And so most people largely scholars assume that not to be true. However, I want you to know that that was kind of a rumor about Ignatius in this time, was that he, he sat on Jesus' lap. He was, the, he was the, the one of the children that Jesus told the disciples not to forbid. Yeah. Is his letters part of the Apocryphus? No. No? No. We'll get into that later? Maybe. Maybe? Uh, maybe. Uh, cool. we, we might. Uh, second apostle of historically important city, Antioch, which we talked about already. Um, the reason he was brought uh, is uncertain. They don't know why they chose Antioch or why they chose Ignatius. 
So the reason was because of military victory and to celebrate and use him as entertainment. However, why they chose Ignatius, we don't know. The assumption is, well, he was just one of the big pastors or bishops of the time. But we don't know. Um, we don't know. We assume, because like we said, the law of the land was essentially usually someone had to point him out. And so it could have been a pagan worshiper in Antioch and said, this is their bishop, you should try him. Or it could have been a defector of the faith who didn't really like him. We don't know how he was technically accused, who told the Rome, uh, Roman soldiers or the emperor about Ignatius. But essentially, he had to have been accused for them to draw him in. So at some point, he was accused, and they chose him to be the one. So we don't really know. But as he was escorted by Roman guard to Rome, he had many Christians come visit him each time he stopped in a city as he traveled. So this would imply that persecution was still under this uh, Pliny law, for lack of a better word, where essentially uh, you had to be, somebody had to come to the Roman soldiers and accuse you of being a Christian. So Christians were allowed to come visit Ignatius on his travels. So as he passed through cities, Christians would come and they'd hear he was coming and they would come and they would, and Roman soldiers let him interact with them, um, you know. And so they actually, he actually was able to interact with other Christians from other cities on his way to being martyred. Uh, and so he was even afforded, uh, I hate this word, an amanuensis, which is essentially a scribe who wrote for him. So he could dictate the letters, and then they would write on his behalf. So even the Roman soldiers, he was like, I want to write on my way, you know, and they were like, okay. And so they let him bring someone to write for him as he read it or said it out loud. The prisoner with the scribe. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so some of the, the noted visitors uh, amongst his letters and, and proven visitors that visited him along his way were bishops, bishops elders, deacons, bishops, elders, interchangeable, from uh, Magnesia, the bishop of Polybius, from Tralis, the bishop Onesimus, from Ephesus, and we know Ephesus because of our Sunday sermons, sent delegation, perhaps to whom Paul wrote Phil uh, Philemon to, and so that's interesting to note too, I I'm kind of working on studying that a little bit more, and others alike. So a lot of times these churches, they either sent their elders of the city, or the deacons, or the elders sent representation. But people knew Ignatius is on his way to be martyred. Word, people, people ran to the next city before Ignatius got to the next city. And so word went forward and beat Ignatius to Rome. <coughs> so the most telling of all of his seven letters was the letter he wrote to the church in Rome. So you could say this is Ignatius's book of Romans. Uh, so he heard word that the Christians in Rome planned on breaking him free and trying to steal him away so he didn't have to be uh, executed. So on his way, um, he started writing to Rome. But he did not want to be uh, set free. He did not want the Romans to uh, it, or to essentially break him out. And so he wanted to uh, seal his witness with his own blood, is how the book wrote it. And so essentially... He wanted to prove he was a genuine Christian, seal his witness of the testimony of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, that he really was a genuine Christian by proving it with his own blood. Right? And so if someone pointed a gun at you and said, reject Christ or I'm going to pull the trigger, which is always our example in our century, what would you do? Ignatius is like, pull the trigger. I want to prove to you 
that this guy is real, this Jesus Christ, this Messiah is the real deal, pull the trigger. Let my blood tell you, preach to you, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so that's essentially what he wrote to the Romans. And, and we're going to get into actually some of exactly what he wrote. Um, so in the next section we have here, um, he essentially argued this was an obstacle to his goal. So he wrote, this is in his letter, I fear your kindness, which may harm me. <laughs> that's a sentence, right? Your kindness, he's, he's saying it's kindness, may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan, but if you pay no heed to my request, it will be very difficult for me or to me to attain unto God. And so he's essentially saying, this is God's providential, sovereign plan for me, and I am ready to go up and be with God. And so, though you are kind, you may have success, it will do me harm. So he said, my goal is to go be with God. He rather, um, they pray that each Christian has strength to face his own trials, the same trials, writing, this is his words, once again. So that I may not only be called a Christian, but also behave as such. I love that. I don't want to just be called a Christian. I want to behave as such. Uh, my, lo my love is crucified. I no longer savor corruptible food. So he's saying, I don't even want food anymore. I don't. But which to taste the bread of God. And this is actually talking about the Lord's Supper, um, Eucharist, the, the bread, the wine. Right? So he said, I, I don't even want human food anymore. I don't want what this earth has to offer. I want to taste the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ. I want to drink I, uh, of his blood I wish to drink, which is an immortal drink. When I suffer, I shall be free in Christ, right? In Jesus Christ. So he's saying, I look forward to my death because then I'm free. Uh, and with him shall arise again into that freedom. I am God's wheat to be grounded by the teeth of the beasts. Powerful, powerful testimony, so that I may be offered up as pure bread of Christ. So essentially he's saying, my life, my death, is to be offered up as a testimony of who God is and who the Messiah is. For as his witness, he continues, if you remain silent about me, I shall become a word of God. So he's essentially saying, if you abstain from saving me, then my death becomes God's voice. But if you allow yourselves to be swayed by the love in which you hold to my flesh. And notice he's not saying the love you have for me or your love. He's saying the love you have for my flesh, my skin, my bone. He's not, it, it doesn't sound like it's a good thing. He's saying you're, you're allowing your love for my flesh to sway you to this decision. I shall again be no more than a human voice. So he's saying if you save me because of my flesh, then you saved my flesh. And I'm a human voice. But if you allow me to go be martyred and to die, it's no longer my human flesh that's giving you testimony. It's God's voice through the death of my life. But he doesn't care. He does not care about that. And so those are, those are the only quotes from the book I pulled. Um, but really, really powerful imagery. That's why you, you talk about the martyrdom complex, or at least I have, and you think of it in a negative sense, like, oh, they just... They want to be martyred because they want to, not like, I, re, I, read, I read this and I was like, wow, this is like powerful stuff. This is, yeah, you, if, you, if you're not of Christ, it'd be very easy to be like, wow, this guy's he wants to die. Like, he's got some kind of complex. He's got some mental health issues. But as someone who, you know, obviously I know I have a role on earth and God isn't taking me anytime soon. But 
geez, you guys, this is just a short, brief stint of our eternity. And, you know, I'm going to do everything I can for God's glory in this meantime. But my eternity awaits. And I get where, where he's coming from. Yeah. So my take on the martyrdom complex isn't that they necessarily sought it out, but neither did they run from it. Yeah. Steve said they didn't seek it out, but they didn't run from it. And that's exactly right. It's not like Ignatius is like, choose me, choose me, I want to die. But when it came to him, he said, this is God's will for me. I'm ready. I'm ready to go face death. So bonus information, Polycarp and Ignatius, uh, he actually wrote a letter. One of his letters was to Polycarp, um, one of his seven letters. And Polycarp was another one of the famous bishops of the time. But it's believed Polycarp and Ignatius were really tight because they were to be believed to be John's disciples. And that's the same John who wrote Revelation, same John who wrote John, same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, that John. So Polycarp and Ignatius were believed to be John's disciples. He discipled them. And so they were believed to be very close. And based on his writing, it's fair to assume Scripture was mostly complete and mostly being passed around at this time. Okay, so it's fair to assume, based on Ignatius's one throughout his letters, that they had Paul's letters and they were not just... Ephesus wasn't just holding on to Ephesians, and Thessalonians wasn't just in Thessalonica. Um, Corinthians wasn't just in Corinth, and Romans wasn't just in Rome, and the Gospels. It's fair to assume by this time, most of the scripture had been mostly compiled and gone about most of the cities, most of the Christian demographic. And so, keep that in mind, as we move on, that at this time, now we have not technically canonized, completed scripture, but it's getting close. Um, one letter to Polycarp, um, who met with him in Smyrna. A common theme was trusting bishops who were appointed by apostles and proven. And the reason this is important to know is because some, especially the Roman Catholic Church, they took some of this writing and essentially said, well, as long as there's no proven sin or caught in sin, you have to trust apostle, chose this apostle, chose this apostle, chose this apostle, chose this apostle. And so essentially that's why the Roman Catholic Church tells you they're the one true church because they can say all the way from Peter to now, we can tell you every pope, every bishop we've ever had, and they appointed the next heir. And so they use that as justification for where they're at and how they're the one true church. And what Luther did was her heresy. And so you look at this, and, and they used Poly or Ignatius's writings to say, hey, he, he, in his seven letters, which, you know, a lot of them have read them se the seven. I'd be interested in reading all seven. A common theme was trusting bishops and trusting the appointed apostles unless they are caught in sin. So essentially argued to these churches on his way to death, do not fight your elders. Trust your elders. Trust your bishops. Unless they're caught in sin, unless they're preaching, preaching heresy, trust them and, and you know, be with them and, and, and trust their oversight and trust their discipline, trust what they're telling you. Um, that was a common theme. And so that's why actually a lot of Catholic or the Roman Catholic Church took this to mean we know this bishop, this bishop, we can move all the way down, and so we're the one true church. And so we're not saying it to that extent, but we are saying, uh, yeah, I think that's fair based on Scripture. So um, nine minutes early, uh, unless we have questions, we'll give you guys five minutes if we do. You guys have any questions on... Ignatius and his martyr, uh, his death, his exile, his persecution. That's mostly what we focused on today. You guys are liking Sunday school so far, right? It's good. I, 
I, uh, I realized that I was lacking so much in this department as I'm studying it. I'm like, wow, this, this is enlightening to reading the Word of God. Like, context is so important when you read the Word of God. But up until this point, my context was, you know, the two pages before you read the actual book of Colossians, how it tells you who's who wrote it, here's who it's to, here's what's going on, which is fine. That, that's, a, that's an intro for sure. Uh, but really getting into the early church history has even become more enlightening for reading the Word of God and understanding the separation between Jews and Gentiles and Hellenistic Jews and, and Hebraic Jews and Judaism and how they honored the Sabbath at first until the Jews kicked them out. It's just so enlightening. And reading all these persecutions and trials. So when you read like James chapter 1 so where it says, Count up your joy, my brother, when you, when you face various trials, know that their trials are a lot different than ours. They're like, oh yeah, I've got this thorn in my flesh, this annoying lady at work. You know, James would laugh. He'd be like, "Really? Like that's that's your trial? Okay." Like, they would laugh. And I'm not I'm not trying to belittle or downgrade our trials. I get it. Some people can be like that. And our trials are real, but we have to have perspective. We have to center. Our trials are small, for the most part. We do have trials, and and they're real to us, and they're hard on us. But the thing that keeps us pushing through is we focus on the good. We focus on the praiseworthy, the things of good report. Um, even just meditating and focusing on the greatest and most miraculous thing of all, you are saved, and this, this life is short. And something Tripoli said that I loved is he, he wrestles with, and I've talked to a few people about this, but he wrestles with chronic fatigue syndrome. I remembered it, my wife. She had to remind me what it was. Chronic fatigue syndrome, and he's young. He's like my age. And he wrestles with this where he, he says sometimes he'll get so tired and just so fatigued that he's out for days. And he's young, and he's just, he's really healthy. He's more healthy than I am. And uh, he was just saying, every time I pray to God about it, um, I'm not healed. He's like, and is that because of, of my lack of faith? Is that because, you know, I don't have faith for healing? He's like, no. He's like, the answer is just not yet. The answer is always not yet. He said, because my life on, on earth is short. And eventually I'm going to be perfected and, and go up into heaven and, and meet my father. And he's like, so even if I have to bear with this sickness my entire life, it's worth it because I have eternity waiting, right? And he actually says that similar language to what I've been saying. Um, I watched this sermon this past week, but he essentially says the greatest miracle, the greatest healing of all is the fact that I'm saved. It's like if no other miracle, no other healing ever came, that's enough for me. Like obviously I want to be healed from this, but that's enough for me. So if we allow not being healed to cause us to lose our faith, we didn't really know God. Um, there's a good quote that essentially says, those who leave the faith or the way um, only got a slight taste of it, but they didn't actually partake of it. Right. And so this idea of those that partake of Christ, they'll remain in Christ. And I, I just love that imagery of just like, I'm not trying to say those who walk away or they didn't partake of Christ, maybe they're in a prodigal season. I do believe in prodigal seasons. But this idea of, People that genuinely know Christ, they're, they're going to be more like Ignatius, okay? They're going to say, even in death, I know that this life is short. I have eternity waiting for me with God. And that's more important. So with saying all that, I'll go ahead and close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to um, study the early church and, and what happened to the early Christians and, and what they went through, God. And, and oh, I just pray that we can learn and glean from this. 
what we need to and, and let it help us understand the Word of God, the context in which the Word of God was written. And Father, help us see things with a fresh perspective and know that our trials are real, but there are other trials that are more real. And, and we thank you that we can push through and persevere and, and be of you and be in you and, and glorify you through this, God. So I just pray that each person here is blessed as we continue through this. And uh, we pray for the service today that you have your way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. As always, we appreciate you listening in. God bless.